The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We are going to finish chapter 3 in Revelation. We started very beginning, verse 1. For about two months, we've gone through the first three chapters of Revelation, so we've taken on an ambitious uh, goal of tackling what some would say is an impossible book to study and comprehend. I don't believe that at all. It's the Word of God. It is Scripture was given to us to bless us, to teach us. And so far, after three chapters, I think it's very been a very easy to understand with the help of the Holy Spirit and Him as teacher. Not only that, just easy to understand, but also very relevant. And there's been one, many wonderful lessons that we can actually apply. So, Revelation is a practical book, contrary to what many Christians unfortunately think, that it's not practical very practical, just as Paul was praying, asking God to even make today's message relevant in our life and apply it to our corporate life as a church and also individual lives as Christians. And why don't you follow along with me? We are now on the seventh church in Asia Minor that the Lord Jesus Christ has addressed through the Apostle John in about 90 A.D. to remind them of their status, where they stood before God, to commend their strengths, to rebuke their weaknesses, and also to speak prophetic words so that every church throughout all the ages would heed the same message and apply it to their own church regardless of when they lived. So it's prophetic material we're dealing with. And he's on the seventh church. And let's go ahead and look at it. Starting at verse 14 of chapter 3, the Lord Jesus Christ says this to the last of the seven churches and to the messenger of the church in Laodicea write, the Amen, the faithful and true witness The beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. But because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor, and blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may become rich, and white garments, in order that you should clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes, in order that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The church at Laodicea. Last week, one thing that we highlighted that was unique about the church at Philadelphia was that it it was not rebuked at all by Jesus. Because in these seven churches, every single one of the churches is rebuked or condemned for some kind of compromise, save Philadelphia and Smyrna. So Philadelphia was a unique church in that it was an obedient church, a healthy church. And Jesus had nothing to condemn it or rebuke it for. 
That was unique. What's unique about Laodicea, it is the only church of the seven churches that doesn't get commended for anything. Jesus has nothing good to say to this church. That is scary. That is sad. Nothing good. It's all condemnation, rebuke. But it's still a church. Also in all the seven churches, even in the churches that messed up here and there, there's an inherent promise or blessing from Christ or a commendation in all those seven churches because there's a faithful remnant in every church. Even Sardis, which was pretty bad. There was a faithful few. There was enough to recognize corporately and to bless. There is no faithful remnant that is even mentioned in the church at Laodicea. There were probably scattered believers here and there, but predominantly it was an unregenerate church. Unregenerate. It didn't start out that way. It changed and morphed into that spiritual condition of malaise. And we're going to see that. But I want to come away with uh, four points or four things I want to highlight regarding this church to understand it historically, but also to apply it to our life and use it as a lesson to apply to Grace Bible Fellowship. God forbid that we would ever go down the road that leads to the church at Laodicea here in Mountain View, California. Only by His grace and His mercy we can avoid that. But He tells us how we can avoid it. And before I get to the first point, I'm just reminded about 11 years ago, I was candidating at a church in the, the Midwest that was on the brink of hiring me. They would already extended a contract to hire me as their senior pastor. It was a church that had been in existence for about 40 years. Probably about 300 people, two to 300 people. I'd been there, visited several times. was interviewed. Uh, by the elder board several times. And then it was time to seal the deal. So they flew me out there again and I was supposed to spend individual extended time with every one of the five elders over the course of three days, one elder at a time, so that they could get to know me, I could get to know them, they could ask me questions, I could ask them questions. So I arrived, I got there, we're thinking we're moving to this church, this is just the rubber stamp, and it was supposed to be. And I get there and I'm introduced to the first elder who was the former chairman of the elder board and currently he was the vice chairman of the board. So he's an influential man, had been there 14 plus years in the church. Very significant, knew everything about the church, the ins and outs. And within the first five minutes of our time together with this elder, I just asked him a question. How would you characterize your church in light of the seven churches of uh, Revelation? What is your church most like of the seven churches? And without a hesitation or blinking the eye, he said, Oh, Laodicea. Laodicea for sure. And I was in shock. I was speechless. Whoa, are you kidding? Do you even know what it said about Laodicea? Oh, yeah. Well, that's what our church is like. Well, Jesus didn't say anything good about that church. He goes, Yeah, I know. That's why I want to hire you as the pastor. Whoa! Because I was supposed to come and fix all their problems. And I've got, man, I've got three more days at this church to talk to these elders. I've, I want to fly home right now. I do not want to move to the church at Laodicea. I'm, I'm running away from the church of Sardis. I don't want to go to Laodicea. So anyway, we spent a couple hours together, and so I was pretty discouraged. And then I met, the second guy I met with was the current chairman of the board. The guy that's been the mediator throughout all of this, and I spent the most time with him. Within the first ten minutes, I just asked him the same question. Cut to the chase. So, if you had to diagnose your church, uh, 
which one of the seven churches of Revelation are you most like? And he said, oh, that's a good question. Well, let me see here. I'd say Laodicea. I said, okay, I'm, I'm 0 for 2. This is not going well. We had the same discussion. Yeah, we got a sick church, a dead church, a this church, a that church. But Jesus didn't say anything good about that church. Yeah, that's why we want to hire you as the senior pastor. Anyway, uh, it didn't go three days. Uh, I got to the third elder, and he had been there like 30 years. And I asked him the same question within five minutes. And he, didn't, he couldn't name one of the seven churches of Revelation. I thought, wow. Anyway, I didn't go to that church. Uh, I think God saved me from that church. Because I was very familiar with the church of Laodicea because I had preached through Revelation two times already. So let's go ahead and look at this church where Jesus has absolutely nothing to commend it for. Point number one uh, in your bulletin there is the congregation. A little bit about the church, the city in which they resided, and also the church, the body of Christ that grew there. Uh, The congregation, the church in Laodicea, starting at verse 14. Uh, and to the messenger of the church in Laodicea write, uh, just a little background on the city of Laodicea and the church that was born and raised there. The church is 40 years old when John the Apostle is addressing this church. Uh, this city, Laodicea, remember Paul or John started with the messengers coming in from the Aegean Sea to the first port city, which was Ephesus, and then it went north and around and coming down to Philadelphia and the last church coming down south and east finally is Laodicea. And this was a a postal route or highway that was very famous and well-traveled in that day. So that's the logical sequence in which they're flowing. And so the last one going on this route uh, was the city of Laodicea. It was in what is called the Lycus Valley at a very critical juncture on a major highway in their day. Its location at an important travel intersection also made it a great commercial and financial center. It had great interaction with local nearby cities for buying things, selling things, interacting. Cosmopolitan, important manufacturing center, producing widely sought uh, after black, glossy, soft wool. That's what they did and what they were known. They were world-renowned for their wool. It was rare, that was precious, that was soft, that was cherished by the world. And what was unique about it, it was this glossy black wool, almost unheard of anywhere else. And they made a lot of money on that. It became very lucrative as a city because of that industry that they had. It was woven into garments and sold locally and exported. Uh, So that was the city from a financial point of view. Uh, The city was also home to a famous school of medicine that even existed in the day that John the Apostle was there at the end of the first century. A famous physician named Hierophilus. He had a distinct way of doing medicine that was actually very practical and helpful. Uh, The city was famous for its Medicine, and in particular, a medicine that they developed to help cure eye sores and eye diseases. That's what they were known for, Laodicea Medical Center. The Henry Mayo of their time. They also excelled in commerce among all these seven cities that we've mentioned in Asia Minor. Excelled in commerce and manufacturing in their medicine. All three of which combined to make Laodicea the wealthiest and most sufficient city in this entire area. It would be the Los Altos Hills of this area. Uppity. Well-to-do. High finance. That was Laodicea. Did very well. They did so well financially that there was a major massive earthquake in A.D. 60, just 30 years before this letter was written, that devastated at least 10 cities in that local area. Just totally wiped them out. Philadelphia was one of those. 
Rome intervened and helped and gave financial assistance and personnel to rebuild and construct these cities. Laodicea refused the help of Rome. We don't need your help. We are sufficient. We have the resources. And they did. They rebuilt their own city by themselves. As a matter of fact, they had so much, they even helped build other cities around them. That was Laodicea. And that made it unique, historically speaking, in terms of their self-sufficiency, at least economically. There's a reference in the Talmud that suggests that the Jews who were living in Laodicea were the apex of ease and laxity because things went so well in Laodicea. They were content. They were relaxed. They let their guard down. They have arrived. Heaven on earth. So they thought. The one weakness or fallback of Laodicea as a city is by virtue of its location is that it didn't have enough of its own water to sustain its population that lived there locally. So they were actually immediately dependent upon two nearby cities, Colossae. We have the book of Colossians in the New Testament. The city of Colossae had its own water reserves and they actually provided water directly 10 miles down to Laodicea. And Laodicea had an aqueduct that was underground that brought in cool, refreshing water from Colossae. And from the other direction, there was another city called Hierapolis. And they had amazing hot water springs. Natural hot water springs. We had those when we lived in Utah. And we'd go and get in the natural hot water springs. It was, ama- it was like 105, 110 degrees. This just came right out of the earth. And so the same thing. They had an aqueduct coming in from Hierapolis to provide their hot water. So they depend upon cold water and hot water from two nearby cities. That can historically be validated. The cold water was used for things like refreshing yourself and drinking and those kind of things. And the hot water was used primarily for medicinal purposes and cleaning and killing germs and those kind of things as well. So that was their one dependence. Uh, This city was 40 miles south of Philadelphia, the last church that we talked about. Um... Ten miles away from Colossians, the reason that or Colossi, the reason that is important is because the city of Colossi that was also started forty years prior to this, under the influence of the ministry of the Apostle Paul, early on, not even five years old, the city of Colossi became the church of Colossi in Colossi. That that Christian church quickly got influenced by a Gnostic heresy. Gnostic, to know. We know. Secret knowledge, only we know. And this Gnostic Heresy was taken on by Christians in that church and they thought they had an elitist secret knowledge that only they knew and nobody else had and it was filled with spiritual pride in terms of its implications and nuances and at the heart of this Gnostic heresy was this very demeaning view of Jesus Christ. They did not believe in Jesus Christ in terms of Him in His full deity and all glory. At least some of them bought into this heresy that made Jesus was good, He was even God, but He was kind of a semi-God. Or maybe He even became God. Or was at one time created a God. Sounds like some modern day cults that we have. That was the Gnostic heresy. And there was a lot of interaction on a practical basis and even a spiritual basis and a social and government basis between Laodicea and Colossae that they exchanged everything, even the heresy of the Gnostic heresy of having a wrong view of Jesus Christ, a demeaning view of Christ in His full deity and glory. And that was the poison that influenced Laodicea eventually. Because Laodicea started out as a great church. Unlike many of these churches mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3, 
Laodicean church is actually mentioned in the Bible. If you've got your Bible, go to Colossians 2 real quick just to see this and be reminded. You've probably read Colossians before. Maybe you've even went to a Bible study about it. But many times there's some things that just slip by and we don't really think about or concentrate on and we actually either miss it the first time or we just forget. This would be true in chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2. So the Apostle Paul went on a missionary journey about 50 to 52 A.D. He went around this general vicinity where Colossae was, preached the Gospel, and some of his disciples went down into the city of Colossae and they started the church there. And they also started a church in Laodicea that was only 10 miles away. And then the Apostle Paul wrote Colossians. He knew the Colossians or was familiar with them because there was a church there. And there was a church in Laodicea as well. And here's what Paul said in Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know, Colossians, how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those and for those who are at Laodicea. Paul was struggling on behalf of the church at Laodicea even though he hadn't been to that church yet. He heard about it. There was a church there. And for all those who have not, I have not personally seen their face. So Paul hadn't seen the church at Laodicea yet, but it existed as a result of his ministry and he was going to make a goal of going to visit the church at Laodicea. And so Paul is writing this epistle to the Christians at Colossae primarily to address that heresy about their inferior view of Jesus Christ. And then look at the end of Colossians. Colossians chapter 4. He concludes his letter by saying this, And when this letter of Colossians is read among you, when you're done reading it, have it also read in the church of Laodicea. That was common for Paul to, to send these circular letters to share them among the church. They didn't have a, pin, a printing press or email and all the conveniences that we have and books. Read this letter and then send it to the church at Laodicea. They could hear about the majesty of Jesus Christ as well. Have it also read in the church at Laodicea. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Paul actually wrote an epistle to the church at Laodicea at the same time. That church is, at, I mean, that epistle is actually the book of Ephesians. Paul did not just write the book of Ephesians to the church at Ephesus. As a matter of fact, in the best, earliest Greek manuscripts, the word Ephesus isn't even there. It's just a generic, general epistle that may very well have been first sent to the church at Ephesus, I mean, to the church at Laodicea, and then was to be circulated to nearby churches. Um, so that is Laodicea even mentioned in the New Testament. So Paul was familiar with this church. Um, he knew about it from his, the time of his first Roman imprisonment in 60 to 62, though he had not been there yet. Um, oh, it is possible from a couple of different passages, Colossians 1, 6, and 7, and also Colossians 4, 17. Uh, some believe that this church was started under the influence or preaching ministry and evangelization of Epaphras, who is mentioned several times in Scripture, who did go into the Lycus Valley, probably the city of Laodicea, preached there. Saw some believers, and based on Colossians 4.17 and Philemon verse 2, Bible scholars believe that Archippus, the son of Philemon, actually started this church in Laodicea. A couple other unique features about this church. Uh, when John wrote this letter in Revelation, the church in Laodicea was about 40 years old. It was an established church. It was moving on to the next generation. That is so critical. That is so key. We've seen it in the churches we've already addressed when it's time for the first generation of believers to hand the baton on to the next generation, right? It's got to be done faithfully. It's got to be done accurately. It's got to be done carefully. 
seems like the baton was dropped somewhere between the two generations. At least that's what history would tell us. But anyway, once again, in terms of the state that it existed, it was probably predominantly an unregenerate church. Uh, Going on to the second point of verse 14, regarding this church at Laodicea, that was the city. Uh, Jesus says this, write to the church at Laodicea, and the first thing Jesus wants them to hear is about Himself. He wants to correct their wrong view about who Jesus Christ is. So He says, tell them that I am the Amen. The Amen is a Hebrew word. It meant fixed, certainty, immutable, unchanging. You can count on it. That's what Amen means. Amen. In the New Testament, Jesus said, Verily, verily, Amen and Amen. You can count on it. It is certain. It is fixed. It is unchangeable. That is Me, the Lord Jesus Christ, the immutable One. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, says the book of Hebrews. He is not a man. He didn't become God. He always has been God. He's the eternal Creator. I am the Amen. And then He goes on to describe Himself. I am the faithful and the true One. The faithful and true witness. He calls Himself. Again, just exalting the true character of His deity. Because this is where they struggled. This is where they dropped the ball, probably dropped the baton. Faithful and true, meaning that Jesus was totally reliable and absolutely 100% trustworthy. He's not just some inspired rabbi. He's incarnate truth. Then He goes on to say this at the end of verse 14, and depending upon your translation, just about every English translation words it differently, but it's so important. Jesus literally says that He is the R.K. of the creation of God. R.K. is the Greek word. It means originator, the initiator, the one who begins something. That's why some translations say the Creator. The NASB says the beginning of the creation of God. He began creation. The NIV says the ruler of God's creation. Those are two good translations. Jesus is not a creation. Some English translations, when you read it, it gives the impression that Oh, wait a minute, He's one of God's creation? So Jesus is a created being? And that's where theologies like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness, they want to accentuate and highlight what I think is a poor translation. That isn't what it means. Jesus is not one of the creation. He is the Creator. That's what John said very clearly in John 1.1, right? In the beginning was the Word, Jesus Christ. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And all things came into being by Him and apart from Him. Nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus is the Creator. He wants to ingrain this in their head. Because that's how you become healthy as a church and as a Christian. The first thing you have to deal with is your view of Christ. What do you think of Jesus? That's the ultimate question. That's why it's such a great Sunday school question and answer. That's what it's all about. Tell me about your Christology. So that's the congregation of the church at Laodicea. Let's look at point number two. Now he goes on to the condemnation. He bypasses the blessing or the commendation, which he's been doing in the last six churches. And we've been talking about that, how Jesus has a problem or an issue with a fellow Christian or church. And before he gets to the problem... Every single time, if there's something good to accentuate and highlight, he starts with that first. And he is sincere. And it's a, it's a blessed and great way to communicate as the Christian community. And also, this should be implemented in your home. I've talked about it with your spouse. Think of at least one good thing that you could say or make up about them. No, that you could say about them before you get to what displeases you about them. Because that's what Jesus does. Very practical, very gracious, but Jesus has no gracious words, at least here, 
for the church at Laodicea. So it really it's just the condemnation. And two things really he highlights. They were callous. What was wrong with them? They, were, they got to a place of becoming callous after 40 years. And they were self-sufficient. That was the biggest problem. Hence the title of the sermon. Laodicea, the self-sufficient church. Living here in America, with all of our riches and resources and wealth, we are particularly vulnerable to becoming a self-sufficient church. Anywhere. So that's verses 15 and following. A couple things I want to highlight there. What is the condemnation? Well, Jesus says this in verse 15. I know your deeds. I am omniscient. I know everything about you. Not only do I know what you do and what you don't do, I know your thoughts. I know everything about you. I know how you think. I know how you live your personal life when no one is watching. I am the Lord Jesus Christ. I am God. I am omniscient. And so he does this supernatural diagnosis of their exact status. I know your deeds. Well, here was their problem. You are neither cold... You are neither cold like the refreshing water that flows here from ten miles away in the city of Colossae that you use to refresh yourself and drink. You are neither cold nor like the hot water that is useful and flows six miles away from Hierapolis to use for medicinal purposes. Functional water supplies. You are not either hot nor cold. Well, what are they? Well, you're not hot or cold. I would that you were either cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm. That was the problem. You're like lukewarm water. That's a great metaphor. And because you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold. What is hot water and cold water? It is useful. That's what it is. It is productive. It is precious. It is valued. What is lukewarm water? Disgusting. Vomitous. The word Jesus uses. You can't use it for anything. Would you ever go to just a, a stagnant pool of water sitting in the alley filled with dirt, bugs, germs, disease? No. It's what they were. A stagnant, tepid, listless, poisoned, worthless, useless puddle of lukewarm water. That's what they were. That's what they had become. They weren't always that way. But that's what they had become. They worked towards this state of uselessness. Today when you go home, you're probably going to want something nice and cold, right? To drink? Very cold. And then six months from now, you want to go home and maybe have a hot cup of tea or hot cocoa. You want it hot or cold. You don't want the, the lukewarm stuff. It's good for nothing. Lukewarm. What is lukewarm? A dead body is lukewarm. It's room temperature. That's Christ's diagnosis, practically, of Laodicea. They're spiritually dead. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth, says the NIV. Vomit you out of my mouth, says New King James. Spew you out of my mouth, says the King James. It, it is just graphic. Putrid. What a rebuke. But it wasn't always this way. They were lukewarm. Well, how did they get this way? Well, they became this way over the course of four decades and 40 years. Uh, subtly, incrementally, little by little, little compromise here, little compromise there, until it culminated in this state. Very dangerous. How did they get this way? Well, they had a low view of Christ. We already addressed that. That's where it starts. Begin to entertain a low view of Jesus Christ. 
Not just a full frontal heretical one up front. Maybe it's just kind of marginalizing him a little bit. That's all. Just push your accurate view of Jesus to the side. That's where it begins. Or overshadow it and cloud it with something else that you put importance on so it overshadows the glory of Christ. That's where it's a compromise with your view of Jesus Christ, either theologically or practically speaking. That's where it begins. And that's what they did. That's how they began to become this way. Other things that they did. Um, He says, verse 17, because you say, I am rich and I have become rich. See, it was a process. There's two different tenses of a verb. The same verb he uses there. We are presently rich and we got this way because we became rich and the implication is because we made ourselves rich. We are well-to-do and we did it. Kind of like those at the Tower of Babel when they kept talking about me, 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 us, 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 our reputation. It's all about what we did. Glory on self. I had, because you say I, see that's the dangerous word right there, I. I, me, my. The satanic trinity. Because you say I am rich. And that, that was their view of themselves. That was the view, their view of themselves, not just culturally in the area in which they lived, which was probably true, but their, that was their self-assessment about their spiritual condition. We are rich. We are rich in and of ourselves. We are sufficient. We are content. We don't need anybody's help. Just as we didn't need Rome to build the earth-broken city, we don't need God or Christ or the Gospel again because we are rich, spiritually speaking, and self-sufficient. That's what they thought about themselves. I am rich and I have become wealthy and we have need of nothing. You know what they forgot? They forgot the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. And the first two Beatitudes that Jesus said, if you want to be obedient, if you want to be healthy, if you want to please God, if you want to grow as a Christian, the first two Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That was a person who recognized their own sinfulness, their own neediness on an ongoing, regular basis. They knew that they were a sinner. They echoed the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, 14-25, when Paul, at the height of his apostolic ministry, the greatest Christian who ever existed, and his self-diagnosis about himself wasn't that he was great and made of marble. He looked at himself on the inside honestly and said, Oh, wretched man that I am. That was Paul's diagnosis. That is being poor in spirit. We are continually and forevermore dependent upon Jesus Christ and God the Father and the Holy Spirit because we are poor. We are spiritual paupers. And we always will be in and of ourselves, even in this life, even after you're saved, even after you grow as a Christian. You can never lose that attitude as a Christian. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And the next one is, blessed are those who mourn. Well, what does that mean? Mourning over their sin. They're honest about their sin. They have the ability, the objective, unique, and rare ability to honestly evaluate their own spiritual condition. That is hard to do, and that is rare. And I think only mature Christians can do that. Paul said in Corinthians, examine yourself. That's exactly what he was talking about. Examine yourself. And the Christians, if they were Christians, they forgot the command in Corinthians to examine themselves. Refuse to do it. We're content. We're rich. We're sufficient. We don't need anything. I'm not a sinner. We've arrived. We're there. Heaven on earth. Paradise here. So they didn't know how to do self-examination. There's a great little book called Self-Confrontation and it's a workbook. It's all about you versus you 
and God confronting yourself, being honest, admitting your sin, recognizing your, your weak areas and your foibles and where you need God's special grace and accountability in your life. Self-confrontation. They did not know how to do this. They had neglected. They'd forgotten to do this. They rejected the idea of even doing this. This is pride at its pinnacle. They had the Arthur uh, Fonzarelli of Happy Days Syndrome. He, they couldn't admit they were wrong. Couldn't get the words out. We're rich. Come rich. No need of nothing. And then Jesus goes on and says, and you, but you know what? You don't know. You don't realize. You don't get it. You're, you don't get your actual condition. You know what Jesus is saying here? These are professing Christians. Their parents were true believers. And now He's telling these professing Christians, many of whom are not spiritually regenerate or born again. They are not Christians. They are professing, false, believing Christians. They are self-deceived. They're self-deceived. That is the most dangerous place in the world to be, spiritually speaking, if you are self-deceived. In other words, you think you're okay. You look at yourself and you say, no, I'm okay. Not only will I, no doubt, go to heaven when I die, God is going to be impressed when I get there. Listen to uh, Matthew 7, 21, probably the most sobering <clears throat> words in the New Testament. Matthew 7, 21. If you want to follow along, you can. Otherwise, I'll just read it. Jesus warned about this self-sufficient attitude that professing believers would have. These are unbelievers, but they don't know it because they're self-deceived. And Jesus says this in Matthew 7. He gives a warning and then He says this. Not every, and He's talking about Judgment Day at the end of the age. Not everyone who says to Me on that day, on Judgment Day, when they stand before Jesus Christ as judge, not everyone who says to Me in that day, Lord, Lord. See, they claim to have a personal relationship with Jesus. And they're religious about it. Lord, Lord. That's emphatic. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Just because you say you're a Christian doesn't mean you're going to heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on judgment day. Many. That's scary. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, the false believers who are self-deceived, Jesus will say, I never knew you. You were never saved. You were never born again. We have a huge problem with that here in America. I'm convinced of it. People who are self-deceived, they think they're born again, they think they're alright with God and they're not. They don't even know Him. And that was the problem that predominant in the church at Laodicea. That is the most frightening place in the world to be. And that's why Jesus would rather have somebody be either cold or hot. By hot, He means zealous. Zeal for Christ. That a new believer often exudes. That's the word He uses in Revelation 3.19. Be zealous. From zeo, zeal. And it literally means to boil. To boil with spiritual fervency, like Romans 12 says. Be zealous. Be hot. Be fired up for Christ. It's clear. Everyone knows. You're not ashamed. You talk about it wherever you go. Please be zealous for me. I'd rather you be hot, or I'd rather even you be just totally stone cold. What does that mean? He's probably referring... I'd rather you be just a, a blatant unbeliever like... Richard Dawkins, the world-renowned, best-selling author of an atheist, because we know where the guy stands. He doesn't feign Christianity. And he's proud of it. And we know that's good for us because we know where he stands. We know how to pray for people like that, right? And we know that we need to consistently give them truth and the Gospel. 
But when you've got somebody in between who is lukewarm and a professing Christian but not truly born again or regenerate and they're totally unteachable, they're totally self-sufficient, they are self-deceived, they don't care what you say. They don't want to hear it. That's frightening. And Jesus says, I'd rather have you be cold or hot. That's how they got that way. Oh, let's go on to point number three. So he condemns them and then he's going to call them to repentance. So he gives them a recommendation. It's actually stronger than a recommendation. But the recommendation is just two things I want to highlight. He tells them to rely. Rely on Him. Rely on His graces. Rely on His provisions. Stop being self-sufficient because you're not. You're a pot, a cracked pot. You walk with feet of clay. You are finite. You are fallen. You are sinful. You are needy. Recognize your true state. Rely on Me, Christ, your only sufficiency. Rely and repent. He gives a direct call, 18 and 19. Direct call to repentance. So He says, here's His recommendation, verse 18. Uh, Jesus says, I advise you to buy from Me. I advise you. The literal word is, I counsel you. That's authoritative proclamation with godly counsel. I am, encouraged, I am exhorting you. I am pleading with you to buy from Me, to purchase from Me. And the things that He says to buy can't be bought with human money. To buy from Me. I am the only source. I know you live in Laodicea. I know you've got a rich city. I know you're self-sufficient. I know you're impressive around the world. It's not where it's at. That's all superficial. I advise you to buy from Me. Spiritual things. Gold refined by fire. Gold, many times in the New Testament, refers to a a pure faith, a real faith, a sincere faith. Somebody who's a true Christian. That's what he's talking about. Man, you guys need to go back to the basics and and get get true saving faith because you don't have it. You're like Judas, self-deceived and lost. Gold refined by fire in order that you may become rich, spiritually rich. Also, purchase white garments in order that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed at Judgment Day. How sad it would be that at Judgment Day you think you're ready to waltz into heaven and Jesus says, I never knew you. How shameful that will be. That's what He's talking about. This is eschatological, prophetic, looking to the future. You need to be saved. If you're not saved in this life, you're not going to go to heaven in the next life. White garments. White garments throughout Revelation. We'll see it in Revelation 19. Revelation 6 refers to purity, to righteousness, righteous acts, righteous deeds that reflect in obedience the glory of God. That's righteousness. Pure, clean, washed. Unlike what you you guys are known for, black wool. You need white garments. And then the last uh, recommendation he gives that they need, they should buy from Christ, is, you know what, you need... Aren't you, isn't this city known for its medical achievements? And don't you guys excel in optometry? And you've developed a medicine that works and is world-renowned for healing diseases of the eyes? Wow, that is impressive. That's what Jesus is referring to. But that's not going to get you into heaven. That is physical. That is temporal. That is of this world. You need something more. You, need to, you are spiritually blind and you need to see spiritually. Your mind is darkened by Satan. So you need spiritual healing of the spiritual eyes and you can only get it from Christ. And that's what he's saying. You need to buy from me eye salve, eye medicine, ointment to anoint your sick eyes. See, they weren't saved. 
in order that you may see, in order that you may become a Christian and no longer be blinded, so you won't be self-deceived anymore. Purchase from me. Buy from me. That's Christ's point. So the recommendation. Rely and repent. Oh, verse 19. Those whom I love... Now, boy, you might be thinking, boy, this is harsh, the way Jesus is talking, because it is a church. God is a God of love. And so Jesus sums it up with this. After these harsh, rough words, sober words, He reminds them, those whom I love, and He uses the word phileo, because there's phileo and agapao, or agape. Phileo was the more affectionate term. It was the term reserved more for human friends. So this is a beautiful picture. Jesus is saying, you know what, I've said some harsh words, called you to repentance, but I need to remind you that I love you. I I do, I love you affectionately. You are dear to me. That's Jesus' view of sinners. It's precious. And you know what? Being rebuked and being reproved and being called onto the carpet and being chastened and being disciplined is not mutually exclusive of godly love. The world has this upside down. We want to compromise on biblical love. We assume that love never incorporates rebuke, discipline, reproving. Oh, you do church discipline at your church? Oh, how mean, how unloving. No, actually, it's one of the highest acts and forms of godly love. Church discipline. It is preventative. It is because we care for our people. We do it because the God of love told us to do it and He knows that it works. Godly love in the form of reproving, that's verbal rebuke, and discipline many times was the physical part of it. Verbal discipline, corporate discipline. That's how you need to parent if you love your children. Shower them with affection? Absolutely. Verbally and physically. From day one, I was hugging and kissing my babies. To this, even the boys. They're 12 and 9. I could, I'm bigger than they are, so I can still kiss them. The 16 and 17 year old girls, they're harder. They're harder to wrestle. But I'm still laying kisses and hugs on them, whether they like it or not. But anyway, that's true love. And so Jesus says, I'm doing this out of a heart of love. I want the best for you. And he says, lastly, be zealous. We already talked about that. Man, renew your zeal, at least what you said you had at the beginning. And also repent. Change your mind. Change your mind about your wrong thinking, your wrong views of Jesus Christ, your wrong views about yourself, your wrong views of your own self-sufficiency. Change your thinking. That's, where, that's how you change behavior. You don't do behavior modification. You've got to change the way you think if you want to change your behavior. That's scriptural. That is biblical. Know the truth. Think the truth. Understand the truth and the truth shall set you free. That's what Jesus said. It starts with what you know, what you think, what you believe. In your brain. And that's what he's saying. Repent. Change the way you think. And that's how Jesus leaves it. And then finally, point number four is the invitation, starting in verse 20, Down to 22. Here's the invitation. Boy, this is a famous verse. This is in a lot of tracts, evangelistic tracts, and it should be. Jesus says, Behold, wake up, pay attention. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. What is the door here? Well, most Bible tracts say, Well, the, the door is the human heart, but it's not. Number one, I know that because it doesn't say that in the verse. 
the door is not the human heart. This is phraseology coming right out of Song of Solomon chapter 5, where it's literal, verse 2. And then Jesus uses this metaphor, as does the apostles, especially Jesus, uh, in the New Testament, in Matthew 24, 33, Mark 13, 29, Luke 12, 39. And Jesus, it talks about Jesus is at the door of judgment. He is there if you knock and open and let Him in. And it, it, every context, even James chapter 5, verse 9, that uses the same phrase, is talking about the end of the age when Jesus judges every human soul. So it is future. It is eschatological. The door is the judgment day in the future at the end of the age. When you have to give account to Jesus Christ who said He was the door. He was the door and the way to heaven. And on judgment day, if you want to go to heaven, it is only through the door, Jesus Christ. This is a call to repentance and be saved. That's why it is a good evangelistic verse. But we need to use this with unbelievers to bring some conviction and guilt, if you will, into their life, knowing they have to give an account someday to the judge who is the only way to the door of heaven. Because nobody wants to die and go to hell. That's a fearful prospect. That's why this verse is so great with an unbeliever. Jesus is the judge. And every person is going to have to stand in front of that door. And you either go through the door through Jesus Christ to heaven, or you go the other way through the broad gate to eternal hell forever. That's the context that Jesus is talking about here. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I am the judge. You can't get to heaven apart from Me. If anyone hears My voice, the authoritative voice of Christ, and opens the door, that just simply means believe in His message. Believe in the Gospel. Believe what Jesus has said. He is all-glorious. And the only way to heaven. If you listen to me and you obey and do the will of my Father, which is in believing in Christ and believing in the gospel, then the promise is Jesus says, I will come into him. And the picture here is of a beautiful dinner or supper. And I will dine with him. I will sup with him. I will have a meal with you. I will have a fellowship meal with you. That was the most intimate setting in the entire Old Testament from Genesis all the way to the last book of the Old Testament. The greatest times of intimacy and spiritual fellowships that the Old Testament saints had was over a meal, eating together, talking together, praying to God together. And that's why Jesus, before He left His closest friends on earth, it was over a meal, the Last Supper. And so the culmination of fellowship in the future with the eternal God of the universe is going to be for all those who know Jesus Christ personally, meeting with Jesus at the Blessed Supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19. That's where all this is headed. We get invited to the eternal Supper of the Lamb to be with the Lord Jesus Christ at a fellowship meal. Awesome. Of a divine category and level. That's what he's talking about. Come to know me and you'll have all the blessings, including the culmination of the Blessed Marriage Supper of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ Himself. And it's going to be intimate. It's going to be personal. I will come to you. We will eat together face to face. How blessed and glorious is that? So he goes on with the invitation. Inviting them to salvation. And then in verse 21 and 22, John once again for the seventh time making a promise to the overcomer. This extends this, this book and this promise to every person who would want to listen down through the ages. When he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. So this is for us today. We are the church. And here's the promise. And we've seen this in 1 John 5, that the overcomer is a, another name for a, a Christian, a born-again believer. He who overcomes. If you're a Christian, this is for you. If you're not a Christian, this could be for you if you get saved. Because if you get saved, 
You'll be an overcomer and this promise will be for you. And all seven of these promises mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3, they are future. They are in the afterlife. They are when we get to heaven. They don't happen right now in the here and now. God is always reminding us we need to have an eternal perspective as we live this life because this life is hard. Eternal perspective. Live in light of eternity. Live in light of Christ's coming. Verse 21, the one who overcomes, the true believer. This is a mind-boggling promise from Jesus. This is absolutely amazing. What are we going to get? What are you going to give us, Lord Jesus? Jesus says, I will grant to you. I will give you the regal and legal authority for something you could never imagine. From Jesus Christ Himself. I will grant, that is legal authority, to you, every person, every believer. Man, woman, child, doesn't matter. This is your inheritance to do what? to sit down with Jesus Christ on the Davidic throne, which was a prophecy of Jesus as King of the world. It's going to happen literally someday in the future. To sit down on the Davidic throne with Jesus Christ and be a co-reigning one with Him over the world in the future. That's what He means. To sit down with Me on My throne in fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 and following, uh, Genesis chapter 12, just on and on, all these Old Testament promises where the Messiah would come and rule on the throne of David, literally on the earth. You'll get to sit down with me, reign with me, sit down on my throne as I also overcame, past tense, and sat down, overcame when? At the cross. Overcame sin, death, hell, the world, the devil. And when I sat down, when I ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father, with equality with the Father, you will have equality with Jesus Christ in terms of our right to reign on His throne. Wow. When is that going to happen? It's in the future. And it's not going to happen spiritually, pie in the sky, in heaven. It is going to happen literally on earth. That's why Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth. It's going to be on earth. Revelation 5.10 says that the saints... Believers will reign with Christ on the earth. Revelation 20 says it's going to be for 1,000 years. Corinthians, Paul says, we're going to be ruling and reigning over the angels even. Matthew 19 says Jesus promised His disciples they'd be ruling over the nation of Israel even. And the nations. Unbelievable. You know what this means? You were born... Well, why did God make us in the first place? Well, you can give the spiritual answers, which are true, uh, for His glory and His praise and all that, which is true. But there are also practical reasons God created us. And one of the the reasons that God created every human was that He created them. They were born to be king, literally. They were born to rule. That was one of the reasons why God created me. He created me to rule. If you don't believe it, look at Genesis chapter 1. Just listen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 26, let's make man in our image. In the image of God, He created them male and female. And as soon as He creates Adam and Eve, the first thing He says, be fruitful, fill the earth, He blessed them. And then He said this, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the earth on My behalf. That's what God wants. He wants a people to be His vice regents on His earth. Spiritually speaking, to rule the earth. And that was the command given to Adam and Eve. And you know what? They blew it. They blew it. But God had an ultimate plan. He knew they would blow it. So then He raised up the nations so that the nations might rule on His behalf. That's Revelation. I mean Genesis 2 to chapter 10. And then the nations, instead of ruling on behalf of Christ, fulfilling Genesis 1.28, they decided, hey, let's stay here. Let's not fill the earth. And let's build a temple to heaven. 
to magnify ourselves. And so God punished them, judged them, confused their language, and then God went to His other plan that He knew He was going to do, and He called and selected sovereignly Abraham, the pagan, and saved him and commissioned him to rule on behalf of God on planet earth, and He would do it through a nation called Israel. And He created the, the nation of Israel so that they would specifically fulfill Genesis 1.28 and rule on behalf of God on the earth and tell the nations about the glory of Yahweh. And we know what happened to Israel. They compromised and they blew it. So God had another plan. It wasn't a different plan. It was the same plan because inherent in the promise to Israel was that a true Jew, the ultimate Jew, the eternal Jew would come from the loins and the seed of Abraham, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And He would rule successfully on behalf of the Father on earth for 1,000 years. And anybody that believes in Him would be co-regents with Him for 1,000 years. That is the theme of the Bible from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation 22. An awesome, great truth. And with that, I'm ready for lunch. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank You for our time of fellowship together that we could sing to You, that You could fill our hearts with Your Holy Spirit. Thank You for these dear people that You've brought this day. I pray that You would bless them. I pray that You would allow the Word of God to resonate in their hearts and in their minds, not just today, throughout the entire week, especially in light of the glorious promises that You have promised to every believer, to every overcomer, that we are not insignificant. You've given us great significance because of our relationship with You And just the unparalleled privilege, Father, I thank You for that someday we are going to reign with Christ, His co-heir, as co-regents, over the earth for a thousand years on Your behalf. How glorious, God. May we bask in that great truth and reality. Also, help us to heed the warnings that You gave to Laodicea that we would not compromise in such a fashion. But we would always reflect light and truth on Your behalf as a faithful church like Philadelphia and Smyrna. And if it means persecution and suffering, God, so be it. So be it, because we know that those whom you love, you chasten, you reprove, and you discipline. In the meantime, God, help us to be zealous and diagnose ourselves in the event that we need to repent of anything. Thank you for our time together. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.